Paul was telling Titus about the, uh, the dark side of, uh, of young churches, which is false teachers and false teachings, which can lead entire families to go that way instead of that way. And uh, this week, we're going to uh, go into the second chapter of Titus, and we're going to look at the flip side of that. Uh, instead of talking about false teachers and false teachings, we're going to talk about what Paul calls wholesome teachings. And I'm really eager to get into this because there are some uh, principles here that need to be in place for a godly church. And um, I'm really committed to uh, uh, trying to talk to you about that uh, in a serious tone. Um, as opposed to the way I opened this morning. I apologize for that, although I don't know about you, but it put me at ease. Um, let's take a look at uh, uh, the first question is, what is biblical teaching? And we're going to go to uh, the entire five verses. Uh, Titus uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If not, if you turn to that section, we'll read that together. And it reads as follows. As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Similarly, Teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and to be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. This is sort of the 60,000 foot view of this. This is that, that, that whole message that Paul is giving to Titus. But I want to go back and I want to hover over various parts of this text this morning. And I, I hope that um, uh, I don't confuse you. I, I'm really trying to actually clarify it. <clears throat> Verse number one. When I say the word Titus, would you just, in, you know, under your breath, say your own name, please? As for you... Richard, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. This is a very simple, straightforward sentence that is extremely profound and very difficult. The two words that really stand out are living and teaching, meaning that what we learn, we are to live out. What, what, what we know we are to do. We talk the talk and walk the walk. Which one is harder, talking or walking? This is the interactive part of the sermon. <laughs> yeah, walking. Uh, you know, it's really hard. How, how many times do you take a look at the walk and go, <coughs> forget that. We're much more at ease talking, aren't we, than walking. But it's really interesting because we're not very forgiving for those that just talk the talk and walk the walk. I mean, other people. We have names for people that only talk the talk. Names like hypocrite. We are commanded to talk the talk and walk the walk. We are to be taught and then we are to learn to live that out in our daily life. That's, like I said, that's profound, 
It's simple, but man, is it hard. I'm going to make it a little more poignant for you. I'm going to ask this question. Where do we find wholesome teaching? Now this question, where should we find wholesome living? In our lives, in my life, in your life. There's an old saying that I learned when I was a young teacher about 3,000 years ago, and it goes like this. If I tell you, you'll forget. If I show you, you'll remember. But if I have you do it, if I have you experience it, you'll understand. You see, that's perfect biblical logic. You need to be told, you need to be shown, but you need to start to do it yourself, otherwise you can't understand it. You know, when you ride a bike at first, you don't understand, you're supposed to, your feet are supposed to go like this, and then the wheel goes 90 degrees this way, and then when you try to turn, you've got to lean, and then at first you can't get all of that coordinated and what happens. Yeah, you get lifelong scars on your knees. But after a while, you get better at it. And pretty soon you start to understand what you have to do to make this thing work. And before long, you get to be an expert at it. And before long, if you're a guy especially, you lean back, you put your hands behind your neck, and you do it without any handlebars, and you go up to the prettiest girl you can see and see if you can just ride right by her. That's the Christian life. You get on that bike, and the first time you go, Maybe the second, the fifth, and the twenty-second time. But after a while, you start getting better at it. And as you do it, you start to understand what this is all about. I never got this when I was a teenager in my home church. And it was my fault because I was just, yeah. Uh, I'm sure that people were telling me this, but all I heard was, now don't do that. And don't, you're not supposed to do that. And go ahead, and you need to go do that. And everything I had to do, I didn't want to do. And everything I, want, didn't, I wanted to do, I couldn't do. And I thought, you know, being a Christian basically is just giving up all the fun there is in life. I know that the message was there, but I didn't get it until I was older. And you know what that message is? Is that if you want a closer relationship with Jesus, you need to live life Jesus' way. You know, I heard that when I was a, a, a lifelong Lutheran. I heard about churches like this that would use phrases like a personal relationship with Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, I thought, what in the world is that about? Well, I'll tell you. I found that from reading this book. And by understanding that I need to do things Jesus' way, and when I do things his way and not my way, I start to understand a lot of things. I start to understand who he is. I start to understand who I am. I start to understand what he wants for me. And my relationship with Jesus becomes personal, and it grows. That's the way to get a personal relationship with Jesus. It's not nearly as spooky and mysterious as I used to think it was. It's really pretty simple. You just have to do it. Take a look very quickly at verses 2 through 5 again because I want to show you, give you proof. 
in, 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 verse, in verse number two, it says that the men are to live wisely. Uh, later on, in verse number five, it says to live wisely. It, it seems that we are all asked <clears throat> to set as a goal wise living. So I was intrigued by that. And I, I went to one of my favorite passages, which is in James. I love the book of James because James sounds like my mother. One of the beautiful parts in James is you need to not speak. You need to listen. And it sounds like my mom. Sit up, shut up, and do what you're told. Only he makes it a little bit more poetic. But it's really the same message. James clearly says to us, in verse 13, if, if you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. There's the definition of wise living. Wise living is understanding by living it. And this little tiny word, B-Y, I think it's the second word, second line, that's an incredibly important word. You see, it is like riding a bike. Does anybody, did anybody ever ride a bike perfectly the first time you got on? No. But we have this idea that we have to learn God's ways and then somehow we've got to do it the very first time perfectly. Otherwise, we either fail or we look bad or somebody's going to laugh at us or somebody's going to think they're better than we are. I don't know what is in your mind and what holds you back, but those are some of the common ones that I've heard from people. But this is what it says if you'll just put it back up. <laughs> if you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life. That means you got to start doing it and with the doing will come understanding. Understanding is the goal. I encourage you to give it a try, to learn from scripture and to try it out in your life knowing it's going to take a while and you might get a few scabs. I want to give you an example of what it is I'm really talking about. And I want to talk to you about it, something that appears in verse number three in our Titus text. It's, it's slander. You see, it says, I know that this is directed to the older women. <laughs> There's no way that older women have a corner on gossip. Right? Yeah. We all do that. And I'm, I'll say this, in, in light of technology today, with social media, some of, the, some of the critical, mean, nasty, gossipy things that are said shock me. It's shocking. We've taken gossip to another level, both in severity and inconvenience. You can lay on the couch and rip people to pieces. That's... That's something that really should concern us all. So I'm going to give you an example of learning from the Bible and applying it in my life. And I did this. This is the text that I studied. I didn't do that on purpose. It's from Habakkuk. I have to tell you, I was born and raised to pronounce that Habakkuk. 
And that's a way lot easier on my lips and tongue than Habakkuk. But uh, I'm, I'm doing that out of deference to my superiors and my betters. Habakkuk, in chapter 1, in the verses 2 through 4, is having a conversation, a conversational prayer with God. And it goes like this. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you don't come and save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery wherever I look? I see destruction and violence. I am surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed, and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so that justice has become perverted. You ever pray to the Lord like that? We don't pray like that in this room together. We sit quietly, we fold our hands, we bow our heads, we close our eyes, and we say our prayers. Now, some of us have progressed beyond that to make sure that when good things happen in our life that we send out pray, uh, prayers of praise and adoration and gratitude. Acknowledgement of who God is and who we are. Most of the time though, when do we go to God in prayer? When we're in trouble. But do you go to God when you've just had it up to here with somebody? With everybody? You turn on the radio and you get mad just listening to the radio and you shut it off? You go on Facebook and go, I think you ought to go to God in prayer and do some screaming and yelling. I think you ought to go in your frustration when you're at your wits ends and you ought to go to God and say, where are you? Nothing makes a mom more pleased than when that little one is on the playground and they get a boo-boo. And the first thing that that child does is run to who? To mommy. Have you ever seen a mommy not just go, oh, you know, the lower lip thing and the oh, boo-boo. And it's, oh. Are you okay? And the child exaggerates the wound by tenfold and holds it up, and they all go, oh, that's just terrible. And then mommy fixes it, whatever needs to be done normally with just... And it's amazing how that child goes from two and then heads right back to where they got hurt. This is a way to strongly bond between mother and child. You want a close relationship with Jesus, you can't keep out a certain aspect of your life, church. Go to him when you praise his name. Worship him. Be grateful. Go to him when you're in big trouble and you don't know what to do. But also, maybe in prayer, shut the door and be loud and be angry and get it out of your system. Because personally, when you take that loud and angry you and you share that with another human being, 
you're dangerously close to gossiping. When you go and criticize people to God, you're drawing closer to him. And he's not going to tell anybody. And you get a chance to express that. And you feel closer to him. And you won't run the risk of saying these things to another person and gossiping, slandering. I have done this. It has cut down on my sin in this regard. I use this and give this to you as an example of how we can practically in our life use this book to find guidance, instruction, and encouragement and then to try it out in real life. And I'll be honest with you, my life is better now that I'm not doing that as much. And I'm getting better at it all the time. Pretty soon I'm hoping to be pretty proficient at that. And it's changed my life. And that is exactly the point. You know, Jesus was here for only a short time, but he was the greatest teacher in the history of the world. And do you know why? It wasn't because he had the best content in the world, although he did. And it wasn't because he had the best delivery style in the world, although he probably did. And it wasn't because he was so attractive in appearance and dressed to the nines and really made a, a great first impression. Do you know why Jesus was the greatest teacher in the world? Because Jesus changed people's lives. He changed the lives of those men that followed him and they then scattered and they then changed people's lives. And then those people changed other people's lives and those people changed other people's lives and it just kept going and going do you realize we're here in the middle of a cornfield in the 21st century because of the ripple effect that Jesus created 2,000 years ago 8,500 miles away and that is part of our task today is to keep that ripple going you know how you can break that ripple you just put a little impediment in front of it and all of a sudden that ripple just disappears. We don't want to do that, do we? We want to give legs to that ripple. We want to live wisely. We want to help one another to live wisely because wise living draws us closer to Jesus and it draws us closer to one another. It's a great goal. Help one another, help ourselves, grow closer, develop a relationship. But how in the world, how in this sinful world can this happen? And I want to talk to you this morning about three fundamental things that must be in place and stay in place if we're going to succeed at this exciting opportunity. And the first one basically was intimated by James in chapter 3 verse 13 and that is humility. Remember James said this. If you're wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. How important is humility? I think it's the single most important prerequisite to the entire Christian life. 
Does that tell you how I believe, what I think about humility? I think we've lost the biblical meaning of humility. I really do. So I want to go to scripture to help you. And I'd like to start with Proverbs 11.2 and read that for you that says, this is Old Testament. Pride leads to disgrace, but humility comes, with humility comes wisdom. Wise living, says Paul, is our goal. Solomon says, wisdom springs forth from the foundation of humility. I'm going to ask you this. Are you really humble? And then I'm going to ask you again after I make two points. If living wisely is our goal, church, the start line should say humility. That's how important that it is. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. This text has been distorted and twisted to the point that it has hurt more people because of that distortion. And this is one of the false teachings. And what I'm talking about is this. Paul very carefully chooses his words and he says that we are to think that everybody else in the room is our better. Bobby, that means that you are to think that everybody in the room is better than you. Dean, you're supposed to do the same thing. Dean thinks everybody in the room is better than him, while Bobby thinks that everybody else in the room is better than him. And Joan, you're supposed to think that everybody else in the room is better than you. Jim, you're supposed to think everybody else in the room is better. Here's the distortion. You're not to think less of yourself. People erroneously think that that's the same thing, only a different way to express it. No, thinking better of everybody else is not the same as demeaning yourself, thinking less of yourself. You start down that road and you will get into some bunny trails and some false routes that could lead to a great deal of unhappiness, discouragement, and worse. I, so I ask you again, are you humble? God has created us in infinite variety. Is there any two people in this room that are the same? I don't even see two people that are wearing the same dress. Do you see, Russ, do you see anybody that looks like you? No. You know, we take that for granted every day. Do you know that what we have right here in infant variety in the church and in the entire world, think about the billions of people and there's no two alike. And I'm leaving out Siamese twins and, you know, maternal twins. We are all infinitely different and varied. And this is a testimony. Here's a demonstration right here of God's power, of God's might, of God's genius. It's also a wonderful example of God's creativity. Do we really revel in that? Are we awestruck by this creativity, by this variety? Or do we start to realize a couple of things and then take the wrong turn? Oh, we're all different. Truth. We're all different. But you know what? Carson, we're not the same, but my difference 
makes me better than you. You see that sin? Yeah, we acknowledge that we're different. But before long, we start saying, my difference makes me better than you. And before long, we have this rating system. Our God very clearly in the scripture says, we are different, but we are the same in the eyes of our God. Nobody is better than anybody else. We are different, but nobody's better. We've attached that false qualification to a godly, godly gift. So I'll ask you again, are you humble? Because we need humility, church. We can't carry out the task of living wisely and helping others to live wisely unless we're really humble. Can you imagine if everybody in the room thought that everybody else in the room was better than they were? I mean, seriously. Can you imagine the atmosphere in this room if we, there was no one here that thought they were better than others? The, the attitude that would be in this room, you could cut humility with a knife. It would be the prerequisite for real learning. You would be able to speak knowing that someone's not going to give you a dirty look or make a snide remark or make you feel stupid. Wow. That's what humility can do. Who is the greatest example of humility? Jesus. He was an example for all things. I'm going to talk about one, and that's just in the garden, hours before he was arrested. Here he is in the garden, hours before he's going to be arrested, and you know that he knows what's in store for him. In a few hours, the man is going to be beaten to a pulp. He is going to have his beard ripped out by the roots. He is going to have skin and flesh ripped from his body. He's going to have some bones that are going to be laid bare, and he's going to bleed out slowly. And that's the easy part of his experience because you know what happens spiritually? On the cross, he is going to bear every single lousy, rotten sin that all of us and all of humanity through all of history has carried out. And he's going to bear that on his shoulders. That sin is something that God the Father cannot stomach. God cannot tolerate imperfection. He will not deal with it. He doesn't want it in his presence, and he will reject it. And we know that there's a time when Jesus is abandoned by God the Father, which is why Jesus cries out toward the end, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's left alone. Now he knows that all of this is going to transpire. And yet, in all of this, he prays a prayer that basically says this, you know, if, if you've got a plan B, Father, that gets me out of here, I'm ready. But I want your will to be done and not mine. Church, is that submission? Church, is that human, I'm sorry, human, I'm sorry, humble submission? <sighs> There's nothing that we face in life that compares to what he faced. We need to follow his example. When our life seems like it's just trashed, hopeless, 
we need to go to God and we need to say the same things. I want out of here, but if this is what you plan for me, I'm with you no matter what. Another one is the prodigal son. You know that young guy? It's a parable of Jesus about a young man who said, you know, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Probably didn't uh, uh, really deserve it, you know, obviously until Dad died. Who knows how long that would have been. So Dad gave him his inheritance early. I, when I first heard this parable, I'm going, that's a dumb dad. But he gave him the money and the kid took off. Chances are he probably spent that money very, very quickly, probably quicker than he even thought he would. And he ran out of money. And he had no plan. And he found himself bouncing around until finally he was probably knee-deep in pig poo, in a pig sty feeding pigs and eating what he was feeding the pigs because that's all he had as well. This is the scenario that it took for that young man to be broken, to become humble. Sometimes there are some of you that probably will say the same thing. I had to hit bottom before I was broken. This young man hit bottom and his heart was changed and he was humbled. He realized who he was and immediately he had thoughts of, I'm going to go back to dad and I'm going to ask dad if I can be the lowest of the servants because the lowest of the low in dad's estate are way better off over there than I am right here. And so he got up and he went back thinking along the way, I'm going to apologize for dad. I'm going to ask for this. I'm going to hope that he's going to give this to me. Dad didn't even give him a chance to apologize. Dad just rushed up and gave him a big hug and gave him a new fancy ring and gave him some clean clothes and they had a party. But I'm convinced that dad did not do all of those things because he saw his son coming back home. That was his behavior. I believe that dad was celebrating the fact that his son now had a changed heart because it was humility that changed his behavior. Now, humility is really hard. You're not going to get an award for being humble in this world. The fact the world is kind of run by doggy dog, look out for number one, and self-interest. But I can guarantee you one thing, that everybody that's in this room right now is submitting. It's not a question of are you submitting or not. The question is who or what are you submitting to? Because we all submit all the time. Are you submitting to your will, your ways, doing it the way you want? Are you listening to the world's ways of doing life? And are you imitating that? Are you living the worldly way instead of a wise way? Or are you, are you listening to what the Lord is telling you and are you trying to live life that pleases Him? Again, this is that message I never got as a young man. Humble submission leads to a happier life. Humble submission will have benefits and blessings far beyond what you think it will. You think you know how to get happiness. You know what makes you happy. You know what pleases you, and that's what you want to go for. And yet, like that young prodigal son, he thought he knew what would make him happy. The problem with sin is that it's not permanent. 
Sin is temporary, and it's like a drug. The next sin requires a greater dose to get the same effect. And so sin escalates. Sin grows. Sin is addictive. The second part that is the result of a foundation of humility is biblical teachers strive to possess character, which is God's power in them. Uh, in this Titus uh, scripture, there are six characteristics that are referred to. And these six characteristics are, in this order, love and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's six of the nine fruit of the Spirit that's found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, and that's where I want to go right now. Now, the verses right before this is a long, lurid list of disgusting human behaviors done by people who live the way they want to. I'm not even going to go through that list, but just about everything you can think of is on that list. Which is why the word but is right there in verse 22. Because after you've heard this long list of disturbing behaviors, it says, but through a different source, mainly the Holy Spirit, produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you think that, that that's a, a worthy list to try to address in the rest of your life until you go to Jesus or until he comes back? I do. And I love this. It's almost tongue-in-cheek. There is no law against these things. These are legal. If you learn nothing this morning, learn this. That list is not, I repeat, a not a to-do list. You know, you get those lists. My wife gives me those little lists and slaps it on the refrigerator. Take a look at that and I go, this is not a to-do list. This is a to-be list or to-become list. Because, you see, the way it's worded is very critical. You don't do peace. You don't do kindness. You don't do faithfulness. These are characteristics of who you are. You are a loving person. You are joy-filled. You are at peace. You are a patient person. You are kind. You get the idea? Also, these are the characteristics of Jesus Christ himself. This is Christ's character. Jesus was kind because he had a kind heart. Jesus was patient because he had a patient heart. Jesus was faithful to the will of the Father because he had a faithful heart. And that's what we need. Richard needs to be patient because he needs to do that from a patient heart. Richard needs to be faithful to God through a faithful heart. And you're the same way. We shouldn't think about, oh, we've got things to do. Because if you do things without the heart for it, it's empty and it's shallow and it's meaningless. Have you ever done that? Many of us have. We have behaved like a Christian. We've done the right thing without really knowing why and really not wanting to. You can do that for a while, but eventually it doesn't last. The only way that you can really do that is with a heart for what it is you do. 
Your heart determines your behavior. Your heart determines your behavior. I don't hear much about character anymore. I, I read a lot. I, I don't hear anybody out in the world talking about it. And when I do hear about it, I hear things like, you know, these kinds of rigid principles, these Christian values, they're just, they're too inflexible. Man, we're living in a fast-paced world. Things go lickety-split, and we need a way to handle all of this. We need rules to govern this kind of behavior that are equally flexible, that are equally adaptable. Wow, that really sounds smart. I'll, I'll be honest. almost bought that myself. Unfortunately, it's not biblical. Our God is the same now as he was before and always will be. And so his character never changes. And we need his character. We need his character in order to live wisely, church. We need his character to use as a platform from which to figure out what our choices are, what our decisions should be, and help us to carry that out and to skin our knee until we start getting good at it. It's a compass that guides our life. And I would make this statement. Without Christ's character, we can't live wisely, church. We can't. And without Christ's character, we can't help others to live wisely. You know when we need God's character the most, though? Is when we mess up. You ever mess up? Because it'll be the character of Christ in you that will prod you to admit that you messed up. If you don't have Christ's character in you, you're going to cover up. You're going to probably lie to cover it up. Pile lie on top of lie. We've all experienced it. If you've got Christ's character in you, you will also have the ability to go to a person and ask them forgiveness. If you don't have Christ's character in you, you're, you're not going to have the courage to go and ask forgiveness. You don't even want to deal with it. You want to put it behind you and hope they just forget. With Christ's character, you also, if possible, you'll go to a person and you say, is there any way that I can make amends? Can I, can I make it right? I'm so sorry for what I did, but I, I want to help. It's only Christ's character that will prod you to do that. With Christ's character, we can be the kind of church that Christ wants us to be. I can give you a couple of uh, suggestions on how to help get the fruit of the Spirit in your heart. Does anybody get annoyed this past week? Anybody annoy you this week? Yeah, who? Anybody have a... Yeah, the two people are pointing at each other. <laughs> they are not a plant. Thank you. There's a check in the mail for you guys. I don't know what your normal response is when you get annoyed by one another. But if you think about that, you can think of this as an opportunity to now learn patience. One of the fruit of the Spirit. Instead of getting annoyed... And doing whatever you do because of that, learn patience. Does any, did anybody get their feelings hurt this week? Yeah, Donna, got your feelings hurt, huh? Here's a wonderful opportunity. You could choose to, to maybe... Or you could say, here's a wonderful opportunity to practice forgiveness. 
Anybody get mad at somebody this week? I mean really mad. Yeah, Bobby? Here's an opportunity for you to practice love. And then finally, do I have any control freaks in the room? Be honest. You're not being honest, are you? For those, for those of you that are control freaks, you know what happens when things don't happen the way you want them to? Well, you can go ahead and you can have that response. Or you can think, here's an opportunity to learn trust and to give it up and say, God's got this. There are all kinds of ways during the week when you can do this for yourself. In fact, I would say this. When you think of it the way I'm describing it, those of you that have it the worst in life, the greatest challenges, the worst trials and tribulations, frankly, you've got the most opportunity to practice getting the fruit of the Spirit, don't you know? You should be zooming ahead of the rest of us. But it's your choice. But the Holy Spirit in you can make that happen. Finally, the last one is godly leadership. With humility, we can begin, and the process, the journey, is acquiring more and more the character of Christ. But ultimately, it boils down to leadership. And we have had some great lies about what being a Christian leader is all about. And some of those lies go like this. You know, becoming a leader in a church is like a gold star. It's like an award. It's, it's recognition for good work. It is the pinnacle of success. That's not biblical. If you want to see what's biblical, let's go to Matthew 23, 11, where it says, and these are the words of Jesus, the greatest among you must be a servant. Do you know how revolutionary those few words are? You see, the world in Rome and the world of the Jewish state, and frankly, the world in the garden, the first sin was basically the fact that the leader, the designated leader by God between husband and wife, wasn't leading. We've had a problem with leadership forever. The greatest in the world is the leader. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I came down here to set that straight. The greatest among you is a servant. They care more about you than they care about themselves. They give their time and energy to help others and not just themselves. The world's definition of a leader flies in the face of Jesus' definition of a leader. And it really boils down to this. Worldly leaders lord it over people. They love the power. They love the influence. And they like to lord it over. People, situations, opportunities. But a godly leader knows something they don't. A godly leader knows there's only one Lord. And that it ain't him. Who is it? 
And Jesus demonstrated this as given to us in John 13, 14, and 15. Remember I referenced Jesus in the garden. Well, a few hours before the garden scene, he was in a household celebrating the Passover with friends and his disciples. And as those men come into the room, guess what has to happen? They have to get the camel poo washed off their feet and their sandals. It's a dirty, stinky, smelly job. And guess who gets to do that? The lowest of the low servants in the household. So what does Jesus do, who is clearly the greatest in the household? He turns that whole thing completely upside down, and he says, give me the sponge and the bowl and the water, and he gets on his knees, and he washes their feet to their shock and awe. In fact, Peter, Peter gets kind of upset. Then Jesus says these words, and since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. And now we're back full circle. Jesus told them. Jesus showed them. And now Jesus is saying, you got to do this on your own if you want to experience it. And therefore, if you want to understand what it means to be a servant leader in the world. The big so what? Believers in Christ's church, that's us folks, are both teachers and learners who together continually encounter Christ, together continually equip one another to know what Christ wishes for them, and together continually engage the community around them to live it out. Church, we're to live wisely. And we're to help each other live wisely. And the starting point is humility. And the journey includes getting God's character into our own heart. And it becomes a servant leader. These three fundamentals are absolutely critical for us to be able, for us to be able to have the good life. To have a personal relationship with Jesus. To improve our relationships to one another. And this is maybe the greatest reason of all. Because all of this down here brings glory and honor and praise to God who made us. God who saved us up there in heaven. We need to renew our passion for humility. We need to renew our passion for Christ's character, and we need to restore servant leadership. Don't shy away from this. Run to this. Embrace this. It's a win-win-win situation. And frankly, if you can find a better deal than this, let me know, would you? Let's bow our heads and pray quietly. Father, we thank you so much for all of your many gifts. We thank you for who you are. I pray that your words today can go directly to our heart, that it will open and make things clearer, that we can gain an understanding. I pray that we can get excited about the path to a greater understanding of who you are and help us to have a deep and abiding personal relationship with you. We ask all of this in the name of Christ Jesus, the only Lord and Savior of the world. Amen.